Welcome to the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and the Crop Tech Show, and hosted by me, Alice Dyer. And just before we get started with today's podcast, don't forget you can get one CPD point for tuning in by emailing the name of the podcast episode plus your basis account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. The integration of cover crops have been the key ingredient for many farmers in improving the health of their soils and their overall farming system. But they don't come without their challenges and getting them to work isn't always as straightforward as it seems. From nutrient lockup to yield penalties and why destruction method, not just timing, is key to success, this episode of Crop It Like It's Hot offers a crash course in all things cover crops from three experienced experts. Now for my first guest on today's episode, he's been helping growers integrate cover crops into their farming systems for a long time now, both in his role as an agronomist in the West Midlands and as Hutchinson's Head of Agroecology. So I'm really pleased to welcome Ed Brown onto the podcast. Hi Ed, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Um, So this is basically... um, going to be very much a kind of crash course in cover crops. Um, So I wanted to start with a potentially obvious question, which is why cover crops? Why can't we just kind of leave the soil after harvest, let weeds and stubble, which are obviously free, um, kind of bed down over winter and then just spray them off in the spring rather than drilling a potentially expensive cover crop mix? Yeah, so... um... I actually had a bit of a think about this one. And by the time I'd come up with all the reasons as to why cover crops, I thought the more difficult question would have been why not cover crops. Um, But, yeah, so if I go, if I sort of start, I think first and foremost, I mean, you mentioned, actually, you mentioned weeds. Um, Why not let weeds go? Well, you know, weeds in themselves form part of a cover crop or could be a cover crop you know in, in high weed situations i've known people actually just use weeds as a as a cover so you know doesn't necessarily need to be that distinction made um but i think primarily for me the reason for cover crops is that it's just a huge wasted opportunity to not have a plant growing in in soil in your fields during that period um so knowing what we kind of know about that really important process of plants uh, capturing sunlight and, and sun's energy and through the process of photosynthesis, turning it into carbon root exudates, which then feeds soil biology, uh, helps that to thrive and develop and become more diverse and then in turn help the plant. We want that process to be happening um, all year round for a myriad of reasons. So to have six months or however long, in the year without anything growing in soil it's just a huge wasted opportunity to not have that process going on um so i think that's kind of first and foremost why i would always want to grow a cover crop um and then beyond that you can get into the sort of more commonly known reasons um i think retaining nutrients and also fixing nutrients would be would be a key one so particularly on lots of the lighter soils that i work on you know retaining nutrients is quite a key thing because we can you know we can quite easily lose them particularly nitrogen over winter if we don't have something there to hold them in the root zone 
and then obviously there's an opportunity to fix nutrients using legumes as well and uh, you know reduce our need for, for, for manufactured nitrogen and following crops um, I think continuing that structure building within soil as well is, is, is high up um, on my reasons for using them you know we've generally had a crop in the ground for most of the year to date and that crop in itself has, has already begun that process of structuring soil through its root system so then by having a, a cover crop straight after often with an, a number of different um, species in there with different root, root architectures is then you know continuing to build that really good soil structure through its root system um, and all of that you know is allowing us to, to in, in lots of systems pull back on, on cultivations quite considerably um, which is obviously a cost saving um, what else I think water management is a key thing so I think aiding drainage so making so actually when we get high high rainfall periods during the autumn winter uh, allowing those fields to drain off excess water um, is really important but also help to retain as much of that water as we can we we definitely seem to be in this this pattern at the moment of having really wet times and then really dry times well if we can maximize how much water we're holding on to during the wet times you know and, and keep it there for when for when we go through a dry period then that's that's obviously a massive benefit um and i think protecting protecting the soil and also our water systems or, or water networks as well so physically protecting that soil from extreme weather events be that really cold temperatures or really high, heavy rainfall or snow but then making sure that uh, by having that cover crop in place water that does look to leave the field um, through drainage water is has been filtered is we're not getting run off so I think that's another key reason and is one of the reasons why uh, kind of water companies have been so keen to support cover crops is, is that protection of water quality um, and then what else I think lastly it's an opportunity for forage so where i live and work the west midlands we've got lots of mixed farms and obviously whales on the doorstep with lots of sheep so it's an opportunity to to provide decent forage as well um and a kind of a different forage as such from from, from grass so yeah i think that's it as I said, why not cover crops? <laughs> Excellent. Um, and lots of people listening may have tried cover crops in the past, but they feel that they maybe can't get them to work. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think yeah. they're very much something that only works in certain systems or are they something that everyone could probably use in one way or another? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely of, of the mindset that they, they can work everywhere. And I'm, I'm not sort of, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, Sort of, uh, I wouldn't say that if I didn't mean it. If that makes sense, I, and, and I don't live in a world where I think everything's rosy and it all works beautifully every time, regardless of where you are and what soil you're on. But I can relatively confidently say that they work in most systems because I kind of work with people in most systems. So I've got people from eighty percent sand soils to fifty, sixty percent clay in high and low rainfall areas, different crops, different systems, and you know we're managing to get them to work 
everywhere and you know lots of other people would say the same but i'm certainly not saying that in uh, some systems on some sort of types it isn't more challenging but they can i think they, they can definitely be done um and if anyone d- disagrees i love a challenge so let me know <laughs> um i think i think that there's ge- there's generally kind of two there's kind of two meanings from i can't get them to work i think the first one is problems with actually getting them established so whether that be uh the actual timing of it how people are trying to establish them or uh, you know perhaps using the wrong species or having issues with uh, residual herbicides um that could be one way and people and, and you know that people can't get them to work but actually all of those things are you can overcome all of those by just thinking about it in a bit more depth and and tweaking and changing what you do um i think then the other kind of category of people to say <clears throat> i can't get them to work generally is because of issues with like the following crop um so you know they've seen negative effects from cover crops too many times rather than positive effects and, and therefore have decided that it sort of doesn't work for their system um but again i think generally with a bit of thought and a bit of targeted thinking uh, you can get them to work in, in most places. And again, I think timing of when you take those cover crops out, species choice, um, the kind of method of destruction, and also looking at what drill you've got to try and drill that following crop. And, you know, is it is it a suitable drill to be drilling into covers? Or, you know, knowing that drill that you've got, do you need to be looking at certain species that make it easier for that drill to work and i think combining all those different factors and going through a thought, proper thought process with with cover cups um i'm fairly confident they'll work pretty much everywhere um and i think you gotta you gotta walk before you before you run a bit with cover cups i think there's there's been a kind of jump to to, to get straight into multi-species covers all singing all dancing cover crops and then running into problems having spent usually quite a bit of money to to get it established and that can put people off quite a bit which is understandable um yeah but i would i would say you know even if you grow a single species cover crop um for just six or eight weeks in the autumn that's far better than doing doing nothing at all and then once you've got that nailed you know build on from there you know can you add other species can you try and keep it going for longer and get there and build your confidence along the way yeah it's all a learning curve isn't it and you often hear um people say well long time growers of cover crops say you know the benefits of cover crops are immeasurable and i guess some of what you said at the beginning would fall into that um but there must be some measurable benefits as well so what kind of things have you been able to measure and what kind of results have you seen um from cover crop systems yeah i so i think that the, the big benefit that i've seen with cover crops is is an improvement in soil structure. Now that in itself, you can't really put a value to in terms of pounds per hectare. But the things that you, the things that are happening as a result of better soil structure, you can put put sort of numbers on. So, for instance, if you were traditionally doing one or two passes 
of cultivation before you were drilling and now you're not doing any or you're only doing one, then there's a clear cost saving per hectare from from that improved soil structure as a result of the cover crop. Um, so that's that's definitely one that you can manage. I think improvement in yield as a result of better soil structure, I'm thinking particularly around kind of headlands, you always get that that headland effect and poorer yields because generally soil structure is poorer. Definitely seen that alter through repeated use of cover crops. And again, water management. So wet headlands or wet parts of the field, um, maybe compacted areas, managing water much better and therefore having a better crop and better yields. There's, there's again, um, there's a quite clear financial benefit from that. Uh, nutrient cycling. I think that's quite a topical thing at the moment. Lots of people are getting really quite confident with cover crops and they're now actually measuring cover crops and to say, okay, I've grown all this biomass and I've measured it and, it, and it's holding this much nitrogen, this much phosphorus, this much potassium. So what, you know, how, how do I capture the benefit from that? And then some sort of early trials that we've done, you can, it, I think we're, we're, we're taking we're not we're not and except in nitrogen we're not we're not creating more nutrients okay so we might be fixing nitrogen which we didn't have before but we're not suddenly creating more phosphorus more potassium you're taking it out of your soil and into your cover crop so unless you really perfect the way in which you return that cover crop to the soil and cycle that nutrients back to the following crop actually you you might you could potentially be doing more harm than good with it and in the trials that we've done looking at ways of destructing uh, destroying cover crops be it through grazing or uh, lightly incorporating cover crops with a disc uh, or versus spraying off um we've definitely definitely seen big differences in the amount of nutrient turned to the following crop and where where you get the maximum amount of nutrient return to that following crop um, is really quite big in terms of nutrient uptake and potential savings in that following crop from making sure you get that nutrient cycle back around as effectively as possible. And of course, when you do it, it's in a much more crop available form. So you're taking something from the soil that may have been complexed or locked up by other nutrients and putting it back into the soil in a, in a much more plant available form um, in cover crop residue so I think that will be an area that develops quite quickly in the next few years and we'll be able to really start to put some some monetary value on, on the nutrient element yeah because I think destruction is is one of those things that everyone's still kind of learning the best way to do it still um, so yeah. so on that is there is there a particular method that you could say now is probably the better option to go down um i mean it won't this you know this won't be one for the uh the direct drilling purists but <laughs> i think um i think the best way of returning the most amount of nutrient value from that cover crop is actually to lightly incorporate it so so but that doesn't have, that doesn't have to mean uh, ploughing it back in, it could just be a you know a surface cultivation to get that green or brown effect, if you like, of, of getting that cover crop residue back into the soil in some way. Um, that seems to be, and that's certainly from the trials that we've done so far, seems to be the best way of doing it. I think probably second would be uh, putting it through an animal, you know, so returning, you know, grazing it and returning it to the soil in the form of manure 
would probably be second best. And I think, you know, our traditional or what seems to be the most widely used method, which would just be to glyphosate it off, doesn't necessarily result in the, in the best sort of nutrient cycling to the following crop, in my view. Interesting. Okay, so now on to the next topic, which is picking a species. I realise this is incredibly broad because there are so many different things to consider depending on the system and following crop and things like that. Um, but what what should we be considering when we're looking to pick a species to grow or a species mix? Yes, well, um, I, I do think that it is entirely farm and even field specific in terms of what is the right mix and what are the right species uh, for you, but that wouldn't make a very good answer, would it? Because that would be <laughs> the end of that. Um, so I'll try to elaborate a bit more. Um, so I, I don't think we can really be prescriptive with it too much. So I, I think it's really important, rather than just sort of grabbing an off-the-shelf mix without giving it too much thought to the, the context of your farm and your your field. Um, there are obviously some some obvious pitfalls, you know. So looking. What is there? So if you think about brassicas, for instance, if you've got club root issues or you're worried about club root because you grow other brassica crops in rotation, then clearly you don't want to major on, on brassicas uh, within your cover crop mix. Um, another example would be I tend now not to use any cereals in a cover crop if they're going into a uh, spring cereal because too many times we've seen issues um, with establishment of that following crop and and sometimes disease issues and pest carryover as well. So generally avoid cereals before cereal. And then there's other things as well uh, around sort of moisture management on certain soils or um, slug issues sometimes with brassicas on certain soils. So yeah, all this is leading back to my original point that it's kind of got to be farm and field specific. But the one thing I always try to do is is try and get as much diversity in a cover crop mix um, as possible. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean everybody has to grow a 14-way cover crop mix. But, you know, two is better than one, three is better than two. Yeah. And I think you could continue that up to sort of six or seven species if you can. But we've got a good range to choose from, actually, and of species that we know now in, will reliably grow in the UK in our conditions, in our soils. So we've got, you know, a good a good choice out there. Yeah. Okay. I think then it then it's just looking at the kind of uh, agronomic potential issues or advantages of, of of each species and and whether it would be a benefit or or a negative on on your farm. So yeah, and I think that 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 comes down to your system really. And and I think the main thing is look at we're probably we're probably going to lead on to this at some point, but it's just looking at how how we what's your system for establishing cover crops and therefore what what species would suit that um when are you realistically going to be able to plant that cover crop and are the species that you're choosing going to grow at that time of the year successfully to get the best out of them and then taking that through into the following crop you know is your establishment method of that following crop likely to cope with those species that you've you've chosen and just making sure that you've you know, you've made it fit with all those things in mind. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So establishment was my next question. Um, it's always kind of said that daylight hours are very important when it comes to cover crops and, um, you know, getting a big biomass. Obviously, this year was very dry in the summer, um, so people may not have got them in when they wanted to. Some years will have very late harvests. So when is the ideal time to be getting your cover crop in? And are they still worth doing even if you can't get it in at that time? Yeah, well, the... the the ideal time is always as early as you possibly can, provided there's moisture. Um, so this year we had all of the soil temperature, all of the daylight, but we had none of the moisture um, in most parts of the country, which, you know, we kind of went from thinking, oh, yes, we're going to have the earliest year for cover crops we've ever had because we had an early harvest. Um, and then we got, you know, the subsequent lack of rain to set us back to, to a more normal year. But then... Luckily, we've had a really good October with warm temperatures and, and rain. And actually, we've, in most places, made up for that at um, a dry start because we've had a, a huge amount of growth in, in October this year. So, yeah, back to your original question, as early as possible, really. Um, literally chase the combine out the field to, to get them in. But it, it will be dependent on moisture being there, obviously. And then if you're if you're getting um, if you're getting pushed late in in terms of in terms of the establishment date of your cover crops, so you know if you've had a late harvest or wet harvest or what have you, I think that that you've you've got to sort of retain a degree of flexibility in, in in what you look to grow with the cover crop. So when you're in July and August, early August, you can you can push the boat out and go for your multi-species mixes because everything in that mix will will grow and thrive when it's drilled at that time of the year. But if you're getting towards September, middle of September, then the num number of species available to you does drop off. So it's, it's having that flexibility to say, well, actually, I'll, uh, I'll keep that elaborate seed mix in the shed for next year and, and swap to something a bit more simple and, and something that I know is going to grow in the sort of cooler conditions later on in the season. Yeah. And what kind of coverage um, should we be aiming to get? Yeah, good question. I mean, we've kind of looked with, with the cover crop mixes we've put together, we've, we've tried to be a bit more specific than just, oh, roughly this many kilos per hectare. We've kind of taken into account um, the, the kind of average thousand grain weight of the different species within the mix, what you would what you would grow that individual species at in terms if you were growing it as a straight stand you know what would your what would your plant population want to be and then sort of reducing that taking into account how many other species you've, you've got in the mix to try and get a pretty good ground cover i mean you could go wild if you wanted to and drill it at hundreds of kilos a hectare and do a phenomenal job but obviously that's cost prohibitive and that's generally where the balance comes in it's kind of getting as much as many plants per meter squared as you can um, at a cost point. And that cost point will, will differ for everyone, obviously, in terms of what they want to spend. And one issue that we've kind of had problems with is getting the balance between the different species in the mix out-competing one another. Is there a way around mm. that, or do you just kind of have to accept it is what it is and what will thrive will thrive in certain years and other years it might not do so well? Yeah, I, if you're, I think if you're consistently seeing one species out-compete another, then that's suggesting that you need to tweak your seed rates of that, that particular species. Um, 
so yeah if you're making that observation regularly then that would be good reason to to just have a play around with your your inclusion rates of, of your different species but it's actually been it's been fascinating since um since i've put together the hutchinson's range of cover crop mixes with with colleagues we've kind of we've now had three years of experience of growing these mixes on all you know all around the country on different farms and different soils and it's been fascinating to see the exact same mix throw up a completely different looking cover crop in some instances um dependent on that that farm and that soil type so and even between seasons so you know on the same farm last year we were seeing oh, what we were seeing we saw brassicas do really well whereas this year it seems to have been around here a year for linseed and for cilia have, have proliferated even though it's exactly the same seed mix so i do think there's some natural variation between farms and also between seasons as to what what thrives but that's the sort of exact that's that's a really good reason for why we do multi-species mixes because you know, regardless of the season or the farm or the soil type, you're always going to have one or two or three that, that do well. And if you get some in the mix that don't, then at least you've got some to compensate for it. Yeah. And um, on this season specifically, um, obviously we had that dry summer, very warm, open autumn. How has that affected cover crops? And do you have any specific kind of management um, advice going forward for them? Um, yeah, so if, uh, I think if you've got um, if you've got early drilled covers that have done well and they're looking to want to go to seeds, which they probably if if you're in that position, they this you know would have done that by now a few weeks ago probably. Um, depending on what that cover crop is going into, what the following crop is, you may want to look to to manage it somehow, and that could be. I'd, I'd rather not terminate it completely at this time of the year, obviously, because I want well in lots of places want that that um that cover in place over winter uh, so i'd rather not terminate it completely but just doing something to to stop it in its tracks be it um uh, be it mowing it flailing it uh rolling it cultivating it somehow or, or best of all sticking a load of sheep over it just to stop it from going to seed because obviously those those volunteers can be problematic in in some crops yeah, and is that something that you're maybe seeing more of in that some of these cover crops are certain species might be causing potential weed issues in the future for farmers? Um, it it depends on it depends on the crops in your rotation. I think in a lot in a com- largely combinable crop rotation, um, I've 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 not had any issues yet from from volunteers. Most pretty much all the things that we would look to grow in a cover crop can quite easily be controlled in certainly in all cereals in all seed rape oh, apart from brassicas obviously but you wouldn't normally put um all seed rape after a cover crop so yeah l- mostly it's not been a problem there's one or two so we've had uh we've had some volunteer brassicas in beans which you can just about do a job on but they can be a bit tricky and expensive to control um and you know in, in some of the more specialist crops um certainly you'd have to be a bit more careful on on making sure that you're not getting volunteers carrying over because you might not have any options at all to con- to control them so certainly consideration but by and large 
not seeing it as a major major problem at the moment yeah okay and finally do you think uh there are any kind of key mistakes growers could be making uh in their cover crop systems or do you have like a final top tip uh that you could offer listeners i I think the common mistakes are basically not not paying attention to all of the things i've just spoken about so it's it's there's it's a case of you know oh well we're going to grow a cover crop we'll just buy something off the shelf from whoever wants to sell me it and not really giving much thought to what's in it how to how to drill it when to drill it how to take it out and and the implications on the following crop so that that is 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 the sort of the common mistake is is not being um not being sort of field and farm specific enough with your cover crops and just giving it that that detailed thought to make sure you're not causing yourself any problems and generally not 99% of the time obviously because we work in farming and nothing's ever perfect (laughs) but if you give it that level of thought it's um it's normally successful yeah so attention to detail yeah totally And now on to the next topic, which Ed did touch on, but it's very topical given the time of year, and that's cover crop destruction. Experience has shown us there's definitely more than one way to skin a cat, so I'm pleased to welcome Richard Barnes of King's Crops onto today's episode, and he's going to give us some words of wisdom when it comes to cover crop destruction, timing and method. Richard, thank you for joining me on today's podcast. Um, all of my questions are going to be quite broad, I think, but feel free to kind of chomp down into any detail uh, anywhere. Obviously, um, everything I ask will also be very much dependent on things like cover crop mixes and soil type and things like that. Um, but I guess the best place to start in terms of crop destruction is timing so is there a kind of general rule of thumb for when cover crop destruction should take place okay yeah well hi Alison thanks for having having me along um yeah I mean when it comes to cover crop destruction it's really looking at the entry point for the following crop so that's really your target date to start working back from so we've got lots of growers growing cover crops ahead of lots of different crops from you know early early sown spring barleys, um, spring wheats, spring beans, and then you start to get through later spring into maybe linseed, and then we've got a lot more people growing cover crops ahead of forage maize drilling. So it's really taking that entry point for the following crop as your date to work back from at the point, to look at the points of destruction. So if you're looking at a sort of chemical route utilising glyphosate for full crop destruction, then the general guidance is four to six weeks before your drilling date is when you really want to start thinking about it. But the big caveat with that is thinking about are you physically going to be able to get on and get into the field? Cover crops will allow your tractor or sprayer to travel a lot easier, but obviously weather conditions are going to be a lot more variable than they might be in the main growing season. So you want to have a build in some you know, buy yourself a bit of time on that sort of four to six weeks and just think carefully about when that window is going to be. Am I right in thinking um, there are certain cover crop species like uh, cereals that might need to be terminated slightly earlier ahead of drilling spring cereals um, to avoid any impact on establishment issues? Um, yeah, to a degree. I, I think it's more... It's more about thinking about species in the mix and considering how 
far on they are in terms of the growth stage. Now, this last this growing year has been one of a constant series of surprises for all sorts of reasons. But given that we had such a dry, hot harvest and people drilled cover crops into some very dry soils and some people didn't even drill them at one stage because it was that dry, we've actually had a really, really kind open autumn and we'll see that when we're going around on farm looking at rape crops and cereal crops as well but we've got some very big biomass cover crops out there at the moment and they they are definitely going to need some consideration in terms of how you're going to deal with them so your comments about cereals it's got you know some some degree to consider there but i think actually this year is more about dealing with the physical volume because there's some some big crops out there they're just going to take a bit of um bit of care and tension to find the best way to deal with them, which is a good thing because they're doing a great job, but just need to think carefully about how to deal with them subsequently. Yeah, that's true. I know a few people have seen their cover crops going to seed and they've had to top them. Is that is that something that you'd recommend? Yeah, the, the, there is always the concern. and we, One or two people sort of commented now about seeing, thinking they're seeing rape in flower, but I think a lot of that's charlock potentially. But um, a cover crop that is flowering it was drilled in July, August, and is flowering now. is is very, very, very unlikely to ever become a seed risk. Okay. Um, something like a radish, you know, flowers and puts a pod on, but the pod would take a good six weeks, really, from showing the pod to, to maturity, and you'd need significant heat, heat and dry, to enable that senescence period to really complete. So there's there's no real seed carry over risk i mean if, if a catch crop was drilled post harvest in july for argument's sake and was left then you could have got into a bit of trouble with things like buckwheat by october but anything that we're seeing in flower or looking like it's going to seed now is never going to provide a seed risk but yeah i think it raises the wider question of um what's the crop you've got when when you're looking to destroy it what you're following it with and how are you going to destroy it and and Chemistry is one option, but obviously there are other ways with grazing and um, mechanical means as well. Yeah. And is there a risk of destroying the cover crop too early and possibly, you know, negating some of the benefits when it comes to nutrient loss or even things like kind of biodiversity status? So, again, we've got people growing cover crops um, on heavier soils who might actually put them in they might use them as a catch crop or they'll actually drill them after, after harvest to take them through to, to this time of year. And they actually look to destroy them quite early because on the heavier soils, they want to then get in and do some form of soil movement. Now, that, you know, there are still some people plowing them in and there's other people cultivating. So the heavier soils, it's almost the case you're getting your best bang for your buck by having the benefit of them from summer through to now. They're not going to do a lot more on the heavier soils. And obviously, the longer you leave a heavier soil with a, a fairly wet, green biomass canopy on it's going to be taking some dealing within the spring so um taking them out early is all part of the plan so it's we treat cover crops exactly the same way as we will with an arable crop combinable crop or you know flock of sheep or a herd of cattle is we don't want growers just to stick in a cover crop and go oh that was nice because you don't do that with any other crops so let's have some we're really keen to drive that planning conversation with our our farmers and say right what do you want your cover crop to do is there a stewardship requirement is there a grazing requirement is there an agronomy need let's have a plan so that as we get to this time of year 
the plan just unfolds right you know is this mix or is this straight it's done the job this is the scheme requirement of when it can or cannot but can't be destroyed oh there's no scheme requirement right well let's just get on and deal with it um in terms of your, your environment you know the biodiversity perspective i think it's a fabulous difference that we're seeing in the farming landscape now even compared to five years ago it's not unusual now to see a cover crop in a field it's not an odd thing there's a lot of hectares of land being planted to cover crops now so the whole scale and scope of the farm and biodiversity is much better than it was before so if you take out a particular green cover you have to take out early well there might be some biodiversity impact but actually most likely there'll be lots more biodiversity habitat on the farm through agri-environment schemes sfi private sector initiatives so I think it's just having a plan, as best of a plan you can ahead so that there's no surprises and shocks and everybody knows what's going on. But the wider biodiversity benefits of cover crops are becoming much more apparent and the more people do, the wider the benefit and impact there's going to be. Yeah, definitely. And then on to the best destruction methods. Um, I don't know if you wanted to kind of just talk through the different methods and the pros and cons of each or if you wanted me to ask you kind of about each one in detail or no i'm happy to chip away and by all means you know please ask so we mentioned glyphosate straight off and that would still be the the sort of main route for cover crop destruction um it's it's an effective way of reducing biomass it's obviously you've got to mind be mindful that at the time of year we're doing these things it's going to take a lot longer for the biomass to break down yeah. And it's not a case of putting glyphosate on and wait, you know, a couple of days or a day, and, and you might do in August or July when it's warm. Things are going to take longer to, to break down. Um, you know, rates are very much a conversation to be having with your agronomist based on the crop. You're using the weed challenge that might be within and the time that you might need to, to destroy that cover crop. So glyphosate um, on its own will do a job. And, you know, some people are using quite low rates now. Um, if you've got some big biomass crops, then you might look to need to look at adding something along the lines of 2,4-D, which will give you a, a much more sort of quicker impact in terms of breaking that canopy down. But it's also about what's underneath the cover crop. And I, often we're finding now that you know people have got getting on top of blackgrass or they're getting on top of brome, but it's a case of having a look in the base of the crop. I think one thing we're finding this year is because we've had such big I use the phrase booming biomass cover crops. There's not a lot in the base because the cover crops just gone whoosh and taken up all the daylight. It's worth being mindful about what's lurking underneath that canopy. And this is where that integrated system of grazing or a mechanical system followed by a you know, chemical intervention if required is often the way forward because grazing a crop, for argument's sake, will reduce the biomass, take it down to a reasonable level and gives you a bit of daylight and actually leaving that that aftermath for a period of time will help reboot the sown cover crop you should get a bit of defoliation which will give you a nice even target to hit with your chemistry mm -hmm. but it also might give you a flush of annual meadow grass or black grass or brome or whatever else might be lurking so you know it's, it's that integrated approach as much as we have with everything else in farming is what can we use in the toolbox to, to get the right outcome? And I appreciate that everybody's got sheep, and nor does everybody want sheep on, on, on arable crops, but on arable land. But there's obviously a massive movement towards more livestock into the arable system. And 
if we're on a medium to light soil, then bringing sheep into the system is going to be really potentially a really positive step forward. The big health sort of warning piece is anything on a medium to heavy soil is um, no pun intended, but tread very carefully okay. because we can end up we can end up doing more harm than good very quickly on a heavier soil with with sheep that aren't well um, carefully deployed and well managed. Yeah, and when it comes to um, grazing cover crops with sheep, are there any kind of general rules of thumb of how much they should be taking away and how much they should be leaving? Um, I think this first sort of step is really about species that are um, safe in inverted commas for sheep. So the one watch out is buckwheat. Um, you know, I, I, I know there's been quite a bit of conjecture this year about whether you know, grazing buck, sheep with buckwheat is a good or a bad thing. But ultimately, we always would say before anybody puts stock onto a cover crop, is consult with their vet. So that's not a, 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 a sort of seed advisor ducking that one. It's more good common practice to talk to your vet before you before you deploy any of your stock onto a crop to make sure that all is in order. So if anybody's in any doubt, then just talk to their vet. And just, you know, if it's one of our mixtures, we, we often give um, our customers the, the mixed list and say, you know, talk to your vet and it's peace of, peace of mind. So buckwheat's the one that's got the sort of... Um, watch out but at this time of year if buckwheat was in a cover crop mix you won't be seeing it because it'll have been hit by the frost okay. so the frost destruction is quite helpful so even if the mix has had buckwheat in it by this time of year you shouldn't be seeing much much of that there um in terms of how to graze it and how much to take and how much to leave uh, the main consideration is not to treat um a cover crop like a field of stubble turnips now, the reason I say that is that we all know that sheep will go on stubble turnips, they'll take the leaf off very quickly, look very happy, and then obviously the graziers looking at all those stubble turnips thinking, right, you lot have now got to move on to that root. And that just takes a bit of time to get them into that the mindset of eating the root. If you leave a cover crop field like that, you're going to end up in trouble because there isn't a root generally. You might, you might have some stubble turnip or a bit of radish in there, but generally we're looking to take the canopy off and not get to the stage where they're eating the roots because we want them through that crop quite quickly. So they're taking the foliage off, they're digesting it, they're trampling it down, they're mixing some of that into the soil and then moving on. And one of the bigger concerns we've had where people have got casual grazing arrangements is that you might say to the grazier, I'd like the sheep off on Thursday, please. Um, and if you don't specify which Thursday that might be, it could be two or three, four weeks later. Yeah. Um, which isn't good for the soil because that, that starts to send things backwards. You know, we want to be, use the phrase, show them the field. They want to be through the field quite quickly, um, moving on, stocking rates. You know, you can mob graze and hit them hard and strip graze, or you can put them in the whole field and play spot the sheep for a week. But however you do it, it's less is more when it comes to grazing and cover crop destruction because you you won't disturb, damage the soil too much. You get that recycling of nutrient and the sheep just keep rolling on around the farm and hitting some new ground all the time. Yeah, okay. I guess on to mechanical methods. Yeah, okay. So um, the, the, a lot of work, a lot of time been spent by many growers over the winter looking at YouTube videos in the States and, and other areas where you get a significant frost or uh, to take sort of continental climate in the middle of Europe. Um, mechanical construction destruction is is useful 
um, but it's often really that it's most beneficial when we have a frost. And the challenge we have now, both as a maritime climate and the fact we've got climate change, we're seeing less of a frost. Yeah. Um, in a lot of regions now, as you know, we're in early December, we've only just seen their first frost in the last week or so. And for a really effective cover crop destruction through mechanical means, that's also time with a heavy frost. And you know, there's, there's been often Twitter posts of people out at two or three o'clock in the morning, yeah. um, blitzing their cover crops with a kick crimper roller or a, uh, a guttler type ridge roller um, on the frost, which is great, and that will do a really good job. And it helps to smash the cells, open them up, and break the plants down with the frost damage. Um, just got to be mindful about the, the impact of doing that in the middle of the night to the wider farm environment, because there's quite a lot of ground roosting farm and bird species that. If they're suddenly rattled at three o'clock in the morning with a high-speed tractor and roller, that's going to be curtains for them. And where they're sporting estates and there's quite a lot of sort of shooting interest, then that can also cause a slightly uh, tricky conversation in the morning. So again, right horse for the right course, but mechanical means, grazing, potentially with some you know chemistry as well. Um, it's again about species and some quite a few of our customers now are looking at having a, a mix that's based on frost sensitive species so they might use phacelia buckwheat uh, linseed black oat mustard white mustard as an example that are more frost susceptible so that when we get to this time of year the weather has done quite a lot of the crop destruction for them yeah and there's less biomass there's less bulk to deal with and you know less less intervention to to get it back to the next following cash crop yeah that makes sense and just on the mechanical methods i'm just thinking kind of given the cost of fuel and things um how many passes should a farmer kind of be expecting to do when it comes to destruction because i know i spoke to one farmer well probably a couple of years ago now and he said he'd trialed various different numbers of passes and it where he was he found that just one pass did tend to catch up with the others, but I'm sure that won't be the same in every situation. Yeah, it, it again comes back to what's in the mix. So if you've got sort of pulpy, stemmy type crops, the radish is very good um, because it's quite big, high biomass crop. Uh, mustard to a degree, if it hasn't gone past flowering, if it goes to lignification, it's a nightmare to try and deal anything chemically because it just bounces over and falls, comes back up again. So it's th thinking about the crops that will respond best to a mechanical um, intervention. So generally would avoid things like linseed in this scenario um, as a sort of strong crop of linseed, certainly, because that will get rolled or crimped and just bounce straight back up again, as will winter cereals, so um, winter rye, uh, winter oats. So again, they would just bounce back and just sort of look as if that was quite a nice thing for them to do. So you want those fleshy species. So, I mean, it's time and cost and diesel, as you say, so you don't really want to be doing more than one pass, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it might be a case that with you know the right mechanical kit, then you know a, a, a cut a cut sort of one way and then a pass in a sort of 45 degree direction in the other would be a good effective way of doing it or coming completely up at it in an opposite direction but starting to get seriously expensive in times of time labor diesel yeah. etc so I, I think our view would very much be about pick your crop pick your battles you know if you've got if you've got a mix that looks like it will it will go down well with the conditions then by all means go for it but if you've got something there that's 
big bulky and is going to bounce back up again, then just think carefully about whether that's going to be the right way to tackle it. Yeah, okay. And then finally, drilling on the green, what are your do's and don'ts here? Um, Well, certainly drilling on the green, it's a time of year piece. So um, it's working, it's bought growers some considerable time in a tricky autumn. So I know we're focusing on overwinter cover crops and drilling in the spring, but it's worth just looking. We've got more and more people trying to grow co- cover um, catch crops straight after harvest for that sort of eight to twelve week window up until destroying those in October, November. And it's definitely been showing that in a wet autumn, that drilling on the green net is a, is a very smart way to go because it's buying people extra drilling time when conventionally cultivated soils would not be travelling whatsoever and you wouldn't get near them. So it's a big, big thumbs up for it in the autumn months. Um, drilling in the green in the spring is a, is a different scenario because you, if you're drilling in the spring, you've just got to be very careful about how much biomass you've got, about what you're actually going into, what the density that is, what drill you're actually using, because the, you know, the activity of a disc drill versus a time drill um, is obviously very different. Mm-hmm. And if you... You've got to be very careful about drilling something in the green in the spring because you could end up in quite a um, quite a muddle if you're not careful. I'll say that people don't, and some people do it very successfully. But um, it's a it's a good conversation to have in the in the summer and autumn months. But it's a conversation to have very carefully in the spring because um, talked about that sort of four to six weeks before drilling to look at a, a chemical destruction. Um, that's purely to give that that product enough time to break the canopy down what we've seen over the years is if somebody goes say two weeks before drilling their cover drilling into the cover crop is that you can end up with a very wet smeary mess that you can't do anything with you're in a bit of a halfway house between having a lovely green lush canopy and a dead canopy you've just got a smeary gloop if you're not careful so yeah again it's it's about having that plan and that conversation well before you get to that stage so nobody's hitting themselves with any surprises obviously as time goes on and soils improve and the further down the track people are with cover cropping and the wider soil improvement then it becomes a lot easier because the soil is in a much healthier place and microbial activities helping you along the way but i would be very careful anybody early in their cover cropping um process to um, think about drilling on the green in the spring yeah okay fair enough um, and finally, obviously, at the beginning, you mentioned um, that, you know, it's been a very mild autumn and that there's some quite big crops around at the moment. We're also seeing, well, the last few years, we've seen some very dry springs and who knows if we will again next year. Um, but do you have any kind of particular tips for this year, um, kind of specific to the conditions at the moment? I know you, you covered this a bit in the beginning already. Yeah, I think it's it's just to take assess what you've got in front of you, and, and and every as in the farming year, every year is so different, and every cover crop scenario is so different. Generally, most people's cover crops are looking very well at the moment, so it's just thinking about you know if you're on those light to medium soils, you've got access to stock. What you could actually think about doing is getting the stock on there now, showing them the field move them on quite quickly and there's every chance that you could get a secondary grazing opportunity in the new year so it's thinking you know the growers we've got a cover crops at scale 
might think, well, actually, if I've got four or five hundred hectares and I've got these sheep on the farm for a period of time, I might just get them through that block quite early on and just keep them moving around and actually then see what opportunities you've got as a secondary aftermath in the spring. I mean, it, it does very much depend on, on the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, the, other, the other piece I'd say is really about the ongoing understanding of what your cover crops are doing to your soil is this is a really good time at the moment to do what we call a cover crop cut down so this is effectively cutting a meter square of the green above ground material gathering every single blade and stem and leaf and twig putting it in a bag weighing it and then sending it off to a laboratory to get the full nitrogen phosphate potassium analysis It'll also give you, you know, useful value in terms of the diet, the, the fresh weight and dry matter biomass. And it, it, at the moment, it's going to be quite an interesting eye-opener for people in terms of how much available nutrients been captured in that crop. Because you times that square metre by 10,000 and you've got a value for, for a hectare. So it's quite a simple, um, relatively low-cost project to do. But taking some representative samples from across your fields... Um, utilising it alongside biomass imagery um, through a precision farming platform, you can really start to nail down what you're doing and what you're capturing and the biomass. And if you've got graziers coming through, then it's also useful to be able to say to them, look, you know, this is the sort of output we've got here because there's some quite good revenue available from a grazier now, whether it's a headage payment or a stocking rate or whatever it may be. You can demonstrate to them what you're actually putting the sheep on rather than it's a bit of old cover crop. Some yeah. of these cover crops are generating as much, if not more, forage benefit than your conventional stubble turnips. So that's the final bit for me is really about dual-purpose crops, and we're seeing a lot more people now looking at a cover crop as a forage opportunity and likewise a forage crop as a cover crop opportunity. It's a chance to, to get dual-purpose from it, and we're, we're tweaking mixtures. And actually, stubble turnips are great. They're relatively low cost, but they're a club root host. If you've got rape in the rotation, then maybe you can start to use some other species and varieties to to break that cycle and and move things on a little bit. Um, And my final point, um, really just think about what funding opportunities there are out there. If you're not in countryside stewardship, um, next year as it stands will be the final application window for the current stewardship that we know. So winter cover crops is a really useful um, option in there. Um, Think about sustainable farming incentive. You know, the soil standards give you an opportunity to be putting multi-species cover crops in and also look at the private sector and look at the water companies around you. Um, Some really interesting offers at the moment in terms of being able to put cover crops in. So, you know, we said in our earlier chat before we got going, it's a busy time of year for growers. There's lots of fact-finding going on. You know, really good chance to look hard at your cover cropping system and see what you can do to uh, either change, improve or, you know, earn some valuable extra revenue from it. Yeah, definitely. That's excellent. Thank you. That's all. Well, it's been great to catch up, Alice, and uh, let's hope we um, get us some good weather to get on top of these crops and get ready for the new crop to come in. Let's hope so. And Richard obviously just mentioned livestock grazing there, which we have gone into a lot more detail on in a previous podcast episode, which you can still tune into if you'd like more information on the do's and don'ts for grazing cover crops. Just search for episode six, introducing livestock into your arable rotation. 
And now on to my final guest. He's been growing cover crops for a long time on his mixed farm in the Vale of York. But most recently, he's been awarded funding through Innovate UK to head up a new project supported by the Farmer Scientist Network and the Yorkshire Agricultural Society to design and develop a farmer's guide to cover crop species, selection, establishment and termination. So without further ado, Angus Galthorpe. Angus, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. Um, I just wondered if we could start by um, you just giving us, you know, a bit of background on your farm and your farming system. Right, well, we're, we're a mixed farm, arable and beef. Um, we're just around about 400 acres, just in the Vale of York. Um, approximately 300 acres of arable and 100 acres of forage ground for the cattle, most of which we've now converted onto herbal lays. Um, and we've also just recently taken on a 100-acre contract farming arable agreement on some neighbouring ground. Um, started farming regeneratively in 2014 um, on the arable side of the operation. Everything's just led on from there. Um, so a fairly broad rotation, including conventional crops of wheat, barley, oilseed rape, spring oats, spring linseed, spring beans, and then there's 50 acres in the arable rotation is, is down to herbal lays for either grazing for the cattle or for mowing. Um, and the, the cattle are all uh, mob grazed now, have been for a couple of years, and that's working extremely well. Okay, so very much a kind of mixed farming system then. Um, and on to cover crops, at what point did you start to introduce them um, and why did you kind of think that they might be a good idea for your system? I realised very much early on that cover crops were an essential part of the, the regenerative system for keeping a living root in the soil in between crops, particularly in between winter crops and the following spring planted crop, such as the spring oats or the spring beans. Um, so we started with growing our first cover crops when we first started with, with the diet drilling soon in, in the autumn of 2014. And just very basic, probably some egg oats and mustard um, before the spring beans. And then we've, we've developed on on ever since from there. Okay. And how do you feel they kind of benefit your system, I guess? Like, what what benefits are you seeing from having them there, if that makes sense? The significant benefits to the soil by keeping that living root there. We're, uh, we're building organic matter. We're improving drainage through the actual physical roots themselves and also through feeding the worms and the worms creating drainage channels as well so we're, we're benefiting the, the drainage of, of the soils as well as that we're preventing direct surface soil compaction from rainfall directly onto bare soil so that the plants and the foliage above ground are taking the sting as it were out of the out of the rainfall and snowfall throughout winter uh, so we're getting the 
soils are becoming easier to easier to work, easier to drill because of that building organic matter, and we're storing rainfall and nutrients far better due to that increased organic matter. Okay, um, you obviously mentioned um, you know the kind of species that you started with, but where are you at with? your species mixes now and how did you kind of find you know refining that to fit your system and making sure it was the right crop choice for you sort of dibbled and dabbled along the way and read quite a bit and gone to meetings and things and learned from others as well but we're now a pretty diverse sort of 12 or 13 species mixture wow okay um, not I haven't got any cereals at all in the cover crops now, so there's no oats or black oats or anything in the cover crop, obviously, other than any volunteer wheat or barley. And what was your reason behind that, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, we've we've seen serious allopathic effects from the cereals. So we've we've had areas of, of... following cash crop, whether it be spring oats or spring barley particularly, um, lost due to the um, exudates from the dying dying cereals in the cover crop. So I sort of found two things, either you need to get on and spray the cover crop off, cover crop off at least eight weeks prior to drilling the, the following spring crop unless it's beans or you just don't put the cereals in the cover crop in the first place which gives you a lot more a lot more flexibility on spraying off dates so 13 varieties or different species in your mix did you say that's that's a big mix yeah 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 sort of we try and include a very small amount of brassicas so we've got mustard in there Tillage, a little bit of tillage radish and a little bit of um, oilseed radish. Then got legumes in there, so we've got beans and peas and vetch, and probably some crimson clover as well. So we're creating our own nitrogen for the following crop as well from the legumes. Then we've got um, buckwheat in there as well, which lifts phosphate, um, phacelia as well. And facility has a lot of fine surface roots. Um, and then there'll be camelina or, or, or linseed in there as well. And sunflowers also. Okay. So it's a fairly diverse, it gives us a lot of diverse root structures of de- different depths and different types. And as well, it gives us a lot of biodiversity above ground as well. So there's a lot of physical cover up on top of the ground for for hares etc and, and, and little brown birds throughout the winter but also this pollination provided the weather plays ball like this this autumn there's pollination um, there from facelia and buckwheat flowers mustard flowers etc so it's really delivering a whole host of, of benefits for for both the soil and the, the wider environment as well. Yeah. And with a mix that diverse, um, how do you kind of get the seed rates right for each different species? Um, 
it's a matter of trial and error really and sort of working with some of the same companies as well that you know helps but it's it's pretty much just a little bit of everything yeah um you can do it technically so you can basically divide the 100% seed rate for each individual um, plant type that's in the mixture. Divide that by the number of plants that are in the mixture. So if it's a 13 way species, divide by 13. So you're, you're drilling at one thirteenth of the seed rate for each species. Oh, uh, yeah. If you want to do it technically. I guess the beauty of um, a mix that diverse is that if there's one species that doesn't do so well in a certain season, then you've got all the others to kind of hold it up. That's very much it. And you will find in different seasons, if you sow the same species mix year in, year out, different seasons will will, will suit different, different species. Um, so with that in mind, how... Say if someone was, you know, trying cover crops for the first time or maybe they've done them for like a couple of seasons and they're not sure whether they're working for them, how long would you say it kind of takes for you or took you to kind of refine your system or um, start seeing benefit? Direct drilling and not disturbing the soil at all. We've, we've found, found benefits from, from the first year onwards. Um, but it's it depends upon what you're trying to get out of a cover crop, whether it be building organic matter for, for selling carbon, whether it be building organic matter for for soil benefits, whether it be for taking compaction out from previous crops, whether it be soil conditioning prior to a potato crop or a, or a sugar beet crop for argument's sake. Or whether it be for, for straightforward biodiversity gains. A cover crop can do so many different jobs, and it's a matter of designing the, the cover crop for that role or roles that, that each that you're wanting from it, from the cover crop in that particular circumstances in one field might might be completely different to another field even on the same farm. And I'm sure um like many people you've also experienced setbacks along the way or potential hurdles. I know you mentioned um obviously you stopped including cereals in the mix, but I just wondered if there were any kind of key lessons that you feel that you've learned that our listeners might find useful on their journey with cover crops. I always try and have a have a diverse cover crop but don't feel that you have to go mad with the diversity. Um, try and have a, a cover crop that suits your own budget and your own system and soil types. There's no point going mad fancy, mad with a fancy cover crop if you're not going to be drilling it till the 1st of September or if you're in the far north um, because you just aren't going to get the, the benefit and the growth from that. It's a matter of designing the cover crop for your situation in your local, your field, in your local area. So if, if you're in the south, on the south and you really can get 
maximum daylight length and early drilling or early establishment of the cover crop, then you have a huge amount more you can you can gain um, in comparison to being in the far north. Um, again, you know, we haven't discussed at all livestock grazing of cover crops. Uh, a mixture that's going to be grazed by sheep through which is going to be quite different to a mixture that's that isn't going to be grazed. And we we haven't actually touched on destruction methods yet, but it's obviously that time of year. What's your method of destruction? Personally, the the, the mixture I've I've come to settle on for this last two or three years largely dies itself through winter. Okay. Uh, Personally, I like the biodiversity benefits above ground from having the biomass above ground. So I know quite a lot of people have been out on the social media rolling the cover crops in the frost mm-hmm. this last week. Personally, I prefer not to do my cover crop. I get the benefit and the hairs and, and, and other wildlife get all the benefit from the cover crop structure throughout winter. But the greenery itself is dying throughout winter as each species reaches its own point of termination naturally. So come spring, I've actually got very little, very few plants there, probably oilseed radish and some mustard with a little bit of linseed surviving. And that'll be about, that'll be, that'll be it other than the annual meadowgrass and, and maybe a little bit of brome or black grass in the bottom. So personally, I, I use a, a single dose of life set just prior to drilling, pretty much um, for most, particularly from following the spring beans. And that does the job for me without any extra soil compaction or diesel expenditure yeah um, whilst getting all those maintaining all those biodiversity benefits right the way through to drilling and finally um you have recently received funding to create a cover crop cover crop guide for other farmers um do you mind just telling us a bit about that project and what you hope to achieve from it yes between myself and, and Farmer Scientist Network, which is part of the Yorkshire Agricultural Society, we've got funding from Innovate UK to develop a farmer-friendly um, online guide to cover crops. So it'll cover the whole remit from species selection, establishment, and then termination of, of the cover crop. Um, Working, working with other local farmers in the area who've got significant experience of cover crops um, to pull that guide together um, between now and the end of August. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I know cover crops, I guess, have been around for a few years now, but they still feel very kind of novel and people are dabbling with all different ways of doing things and there's still a lot of unknowns about them isn't there so i'm sure that will be a really helpful thing for farmers excellent well thank you very much and that's it for today's episode but hopefully there were plenty of nuggets of useful information there 
whatever your system to either help you start to introduce cover crops or just further refine them. Thanks very much for listening. Big thank you to all of our speakers and looking forward to seeing you next time.